today on EdgeFX. Now, this isn't just about studying pictures of forests or idealized visions of nature that we might like to protect because we think that they're beautiful. We have to constantly ask ourselves, who is thinking of these things as beautiful? Whose particular vision of nature is under discussion? And how have certain people, groups, and non-human groups been excluded from the stories of not just art history, but environmental history more broadly? Historian Christopher Slaby is in conversation with Alan Braddock, a professor of art history and American studies at William & Mary, and the co-curator of the major new exhibit, Nature's Nation, American Art and Environment which is currently touring the United States. They discuss the long road to that exhibition, how questions of ecology, politics, and justice have suffused American art for centuries, and what art historians can do for environmental studies. Alan, thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Uh, I think I want to start by talking about your background Can you uh, explain what your training is in and and how you came to that field? Sure. I have a PhD in art history from the University of Delaware, which I received in 2002. Uh, My area of expertise, if you will, is North American art from the colonial period to the the present. And um, I have kind of a long and circuitous history in art history. I... uh, actually started college as a studio art major, but then took a course on medieval art that really kind of excited me about art history. Having grown up in in Iowa uh, as a kid in the 1960s and early 70s, I, uh, I found uh, art history courses opening doors to cultural phenomena that I had no familiarity with whatsoever, and it was exciting. And that interest was further galvanized by spending a semester abroad in Florence, Italy, during college. And then I had an internship at the National Gallery of Art in Washington. And I started a graduate program in art history at Johns Hopkins University uh, in Baltimore in the 1980s, when I thought I would be a a scholar of Italian Renaissance art. But um, I found myself kind of running into some interesting challenges at Johns Hopkins where my political instincts as a scholar and a person encountered some pushback from some of my professors there. And I ended up deciding to to quit the PhD program and take some time off and work in a library and play in a band and kind of retool myself for a study in a different area, namely American art history, where there was more sort of uh, openness to different uh, methods and points of view. So that's how I ended up at the University of Delaware. had my first teaching job at Syracuse University. Then I taught for a few years at Temple University in Philadelphia before ending up here at William & Mary in 2012. Your dissertation and your first book were on a relatively conventional art historical topic, the 19th century realist painter Thomas Aikens and questions about the ideas of culture at that time. But obviously now you've become very heavily interested in and invested in 
scholarship on ecology and art. Can you talk a little bit about that that uh, evolution, that, that mm-hmm. shift? Sure. You're absolutely right in saying that my selection of Aikens and my approach to him from a kind of monographic perspective was entirely conventional. When I was doing work on him, though, I, I started realizing that there were still stories left untold about his work. And I I kind of discovered that this canonical North American painter with a, a great reputation for realism in 19th century painting would be an interesting vehicle for exploring a couple of new stories. One had to do with uh, race and um, the fact that no previous scholar had examined Aikens's work closely for its uh, construction of racial identity, which seemed a little puzzling to me in light of his uh, deep connections within the scientific community in Philadelphia, where there was not only uh, an important medical community, which a lot of Aikens scholars knew well about, but also a a new uh, anthropological scientific community that had uh, an awful lot to say about human identity and cultural uh, difference. And it became clear to me that Aikens uh, was very plugged into that community as well and had become sort of a, a visual spokesperson for them and produced a number of portraits of them. But what, what I discovered was that most of these anthropologists in Philadelphia were were in their own way quite traditional in their understanding of anthropology and cultural difference and race. And uh, unlike the kind of newer cultural pluralism that was emerging in New York City, most notably around uh, Franz Boas, the important uh, German-American anthropologist at Columbia University, uh, these Philadelphia anthropologists that Aikens knew were still kind of mired in a 19th century social evolutionism. And, um, and so claims about Aikens having a kind of modern cultural understanding or a modern understanding of cultural differences and pluralism were kind of anachronistic. And so my book about him sort of explored the significance of that in relation to his realism. And as a result, his realism started to look to me more complicated and in some ways more problematic than scholars had previously understood. But while doing that work of sort of reassessing Aikens's realism in light of cultural history, I also became aware that there was a whole kind of environmental historical context regarding Aikens and especially Philadelphia that had not been fully explored. A lot of people greatly admire Aikens's pictures of athletes uh, exercising outside, notably his series of pictures of rowers uh, on the Schuylkill River in Philadelphia, a very popular sport in the 19th century that Aikens himself was involved in. And uh, the more I learned about rowing and Philadelphia and the Philadelphia urban environment, the more I realized that there was this weird disconnect between the sort of heroism of his vision of rowing with all these white masculine athletes and the reality on the ground, the truth on the ground, which was that the city was a rapidly industrializing modern metropolis that was 
uh, polluting its waterways terribly in the 19th century, such that there were regular epidemics of cholera and other kind of uh, pathogenetic diseases resulting from this new kind of modern industrial environmental condition that Aikens's paintings, for all of their realism, kind of filtered out. And that, to me, seemed like an interesting and unexplored fact of art and its relation to environmental history. And it, it kind of made me realize, gee, what if I were to apply this kind of historical research to other parts of the history of not only American art, but the, the field more broadly? And so since about 2009, I've been really kind of pushing in that direction. I started teaching a course at Syracuse way back in 2004, I think, uh, called American Art and Environment that was really the first stab at this. I had already begun to kind of wonder about this, partly in response to my own kind of personal realization that there's a kind of looming environmental crisis mm -hmm. that the world faces. And, uh, you know, what what do I as an art historian do about this? Is there anything at all that I can do mm -hmm. apart from, you know, recycling and buying a fuel-efficient vehicle and doing sort of ordinary things that ordinary people do. And I sort of began to think, gee, maybe my own work as an art historian ought to change as well. And so that eventually prompted me to send a proposal for a conference session to the College Art Association in around 2005, 2006 on sort of greening art history, uh, because I had noticed that that kind of scholarly impulse had been around in the literature field for quite some time, as well as in environmental history, but there weren't any art historians bringing that environmental perspective to their field. Well, the College Art Association turned down my proposal, so I turned around and I resubmitted it to the American Studies Association uh, the following year, and they accepted it. And uh, so I ch chaired a session at that conference with a literary scholar named Christoph Ermscher, who, with me, went on to co-edit uh, an important edited volume called A Keener Perception, Eco-Critical Studies in American Art History, that tried to really put this idea of an eco-critical approach to art history, that is, a, a, an, a, an approach to art history that takes environmental history and environmental issues seriously as part of what art history can do. Um, we, we put that front and center uh, as the purpose of the book, found a number of scholars who'd been kind of dabbling in that uh, approach, not only art historians, but literature people and historians, even architectural historians. And um, it became a book published in 2009. Of course, uh, it's interesting. We tried and tried and tried to find a, an art history publisher mm -hmm. to take that mm -hmm. book, but they all turned us down. So we ended up publishing it with a, a literary press, the University of Alabama Press mm -hmm. in Tuscaloosa. And uh, so they published it, and I'm kind of proud of it. It must be interesting to reflect back on so the, that publication is now 10 years old. These initial forays that you were making and possibly perhaps a few other people were making, 
years ago to get the field of art history, which is, in my experience, generally interested in all sorts of different approaches and ideas and questions um, and issues to get the field of art history to think about these environmental and ecological issues. And certainly in the field of, say, American art history, it would seem that the canon of images and objects that we often talk about has been ripe for this kind of investigation. And yet it seems there was this initial reluctance at first. And yet nowadays, this seems very, very different. There's a story just the other day in the New York Times about ecological or environmental art exhibitions. I think eco-critical art history is, it seems to be really having its moment now. Would, would you agree with that? I think so. I hope so. It has a long way to go, mm-hmm. and so do I as a scholar. I mean, having been formed in a kind of canonical approach to the field of art history and, and American art history in general, I've over the past few years discovered that that I need to really work hard to kind of expand my horizons as a scholar mm-hmm. uh, and kind of globalize not only the field of art history, uh, but eco-critical art history as well, which, you know, has sort of emerged in European and North American scholarship, but which ought to look all over and, and, and take into consideration every imaginable historical tradition. And so I'm trying to kind of work on uh, expanding my horizons, my approach, while also being wary of doing so in a in a kind of imperial way i don't want to do that i want to kind of understand how different artistic and cultural traditions have perceived and and imagined environments and i also have realized increasingly in recent years how important it is to take matters of environmental justice into account when pursuing eco-critical art history. Now, this isn't just about studying pictures of forests or, you know, idealized visions of nature Mm -hmm. that we might like to protect because we think that they're beautiful. We have to constantly ask ourselves, well, who is thinking of these things as beautiful? Whose particular vision of nature is under discussion? Mm -hmm. And um, how have certain people, groups, and non-human groups been excluded from the stories of not just art history, but environmental history more broadly? Mm-hmm. I'm pushing, in other words, for a, an inclusive approach to eco-critical art history mm-hmm. that looks across the world and across species which is a really tricky thing to do because uh, for some people, you know, looking beyond the human can be a politically charged and problematic thing. But, I, you know, the evidence of global warming and the sixth mass extinction and all of these other environmental problems we face really force a sense of ethical urgency on multiple registers. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like... um in art history, which has been in many ways a global field, but with these sort of subsets of, uh, say, you know, Western European art, American mm-hmm. art, African art, Southeast Asian art, 
an eco-critical approach to art history emphasizes or at least makes it very difficult to ignore the much broader interconnectedness mm -hmm. of everything. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a kind of uh, undercurrent of transnationalism. Yep. I mean, I think uh, this is, I see this as an invitation for collaboration and, and for people to work together. It, it would be impossible for, say, one art historian or one environmental historian or just one individual to sort of tell this entire story. Sure. And, and I'm curious to hear about your own experiences yeah. with this kind of thing, because you've been going to conferences talking about these issues now for a while. It sounds like really this isn't an invitation for, you know, the sort of traditional scholarly model. Here's your research project. You go to the archive, you go to your desk, you write it. But really working with a lot of people from a lot of different places to to tackle these these questions and issues. Right. Well, there were inklings of this more expansive uh, or global transnational approach that you're uh, talking about already visible in a keener perception in 2009 because uh, my co-editor Christoph Ermscher and I made sure to not only reach out across multiple disciplines, but uh, consider a diverse array of artists and issues. So, for example, you know, in addition to my essay on Aikens for that book that examined this problem of kind of racial ecology and racial in injustice in Philadelphia around rowing and the construction of outdoor spaces in the city. There were essays on, you know, early colonial English visions of indigenous people in the in the Carolinas and in Virginia. There was an essay on nineteenth century landscape painting and its sort of engagement with romanticism, but also its exclusion of indigenous art history and indigenous history in general uh, by way of uh, these sort of uh, spectacular visions of of uh, national park scenery like uh, Yellowstone. There were essays on urban ecology, for example, one uh, looking at the, uh, the murals of Aaron Douglas, a leading Harlem Renaissance painter in the 1930s, and how he understood black American history and um, its sort of complex interrelationship with various environments, not only you know, the urban environment of New York City, which was the destination for so many African Americans during the, the Great Migration, but also the, the deeper history looking back to the American South and even to Africa. Um, and then you know, there was a culminating essay on the Arctic photography of Shubankar Banerjee, who is an Indian-American immigrant who quit his job at Los Alamos Nuclear Lab and, and traveled to the Arctic and spent a year taking photographs of, of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which uh, soon became caught up in one of the many kind of culture war debates in Washington, D.C., when his pictures were displayed in the midst of uh, congressional discussions about oil drilling in the Arctic. And uh, his exhibition at the Smithsonian Institution was censored and downsized uh, under political pressure from uh, people in Congress who didn't want to see that the Arctic was this place of beauty and 
and life and human diversity. And even in, in this book about eco-critical approaches to American art history, we tried to kind of hint at, at a kind of uh, a transnational diversity. But I think what needs to happen now is a, is a much more rigorous engagement with all continents and all places and all, all peoples and all all subject matter, uh, if possible, it's a it's a, a an insanely ambitious idea, and it maybe sounds like an imperial project of sorts. But actually, I I see it as an anti-imperial project of reclaiming lost histories that can reframe and defamiliarize more familiar understandings of history as a kind of linear progress of colonial whatever you know it's uh it's a quite a diverse set of histories each of which has its kind of environmental story to tell mm -hmm. and so that's why in this more recent project this exhibition that i co-curated at princeton university an exhibition titled nature's nation american art and environment which is currently traveling around the country right now it's on view at the peabody essex museum in salem massachusetts even though, again, the, the sort of nominal framework is American art history, mainly because that's the area of expertise that my co-curator, Carl Cusero, and I are, are knowledgeable about. But here we really attempted, to the best of our ability, to engage questions of environmental justice and a very diverse array of artists. We could have done much better, I think. In hindsight, you know, this project unfolded over years and sort of reflects my own learning curve as a scholar in many ways and my own limitations as a scholar. But it provides another, I think, useful model for what art history might do in looking farther afield and, and sort of reimagining long trajectories of history through a kind of eco-critical art historical lens. For much of our time, I would like to talk about the exhibition. But before we get into that, you've talked a lot now about the potential for eco-critical art history as this kind of transnational, almost anti-colonial, anti-imperial project for thinking about art and the environment. And I want to just get your take a little bit more on the ways that this uh, set of questions and inquiry developed in and coming out of art history can more broadly impact other fields, the various fields of environmental studies, as well as the sort of growing environmental humanities. What's the role for art history, mm -hmm. and in particular, eco-critical art history, for things like the environmental humanities? That's That's a great question. And I think it's important to acknowledge, first of all, that eco-criticism emerged not in art history, but in literary studies and parallel with environmental history and environmental philosophy. So, for example, the uh, important literary scholar at Harvard, uh, Lawrence Buell, wrote already in 1999 of what he called a kind of eco-critical insurgency in the field of literary studies, because it had been going on there for over a decade. And it's that kind of literary impulse especially that caught my eye and provided me a model for what might happen in art history. Basically asking, you know, what does the history of art have to tell us 
about the way in which artists can imagine and interpret and bear witness to environmental change. Um, because I think one of the, the huge problems we face today in you know both politically and and scientifically and culturally is wrestling with change or recognition of change. Uh, the change is wrought by human beings, especially in what the many of the scientists now call the Anthropocene, and how that change is unevenly distributed across different communities, such that not everyone perceives an environment the same way, nor does everyone have the same responsibility for the changes that have been taking place. You know, those of us in, in the West or in the global North, you know, the industrialized world, that have enjoyed certain economic privileges and cultural privileges for centuries, in many ways bear more responsibility because of the history of colonialism and the history of capitalism and the way in which it has played a, a kind of dominant role in not only the consumption of resources, but in sort of their manipulation and imposition of certain kinds of order on the rest of the world. And, you know, for a lot of people in the West, that order has become habitual and and kind of entrenched. And it needs to be questioned and subjected to change. And environmental history and eco-criticism give us important uh, lenses, critical lenses for kind of understanding the changes that have occurred and posing tough questions about what we need to do moving forward. And so I guess I see art history as joining the environmental humanities discourse already set in motion by people in literature and history, and in a sense, joining the chorus of those who acknowledge uh, environmental change as a fundamental fact of life that not only we must acknowledge and cope with and deal with ethically and fairly, but it's a phenomenon that artists have been acknowledging in various ways for centuries. And to not make that part of the work of art history seems sort of, I don't know, irresponsible almost. Mm -hmm. But conversely, it seems like a great opportunity mm -hmm. to enrich and invigorate the field of art history and make it part of a, a larger sort of discourse in the environmental humanities without simply collapsing what art historians do with the work of people in other areas and fields. I mean, I think art historians have have special skills of visual analysis and historical research and attentiveness to certain kinds of materials and and uh, visual understandings and perceptions that can augment and, and make this kind of chorus greater than the sum of its parts, this chorus of the environmental humanities. Very briefly, eco-critical art history, in my view, is just a, it's a more wide-ranging, environmentally informed way of doing art history that in many ways expands the meaning of historical context to include not just sort of human social institutions and conditions, but, but the larger environmental context in which these human activities have, have uh, unfolded over time. 
and uh, it can operate on the level of representation, you know, pictures of land or pollution or whatever, or it can operate more sort of imminently on the on the level of form and materials. You know, what what do certain forms in art tell us about the way environments are constructed and perceived and understood? What kinds of ethics of interconnectedness can forms and materials in art, what can those things uh, do to help us understand environmental ethics and environmental history? I mean, obviously, I'm not an unbiased observer here, but it really does sound like there's just so much potential in art history and in eco-critical art history, both the the expertise and the kind of practices that art historians bring to bear yeah. on all of these sources and materials. And again, exactly what you've said, the the fact that artists are observers mm-hmm. and and they present those representations, whether they're always, you know, exactly factually accurate or their idealizations, those are both things that we can look at in understanding past environments and past ecological relationships. And likewise, Images and objects are physical things, and Mm -hmm. artists and the art world exist in physical and material space and form. And so all of that is ecologically entangled. And so knowing about that and thinking about that and conducting research on that can tell us a lot about past environmental issues. I think that's absolutely right. And it's also, I think, important to point out here that even if a, a historical artist was not what we would call today an environmentalist. Which, which an, most of them weren't, right? Right, obviously. most of them weren't. You know, But we shouldn't limit our scope in ecocritical inquiry to merely those artists who had some kind of environmentalist agenda that we recognize today as environmentalist. Mm-hmm. Because just as literary scholars are you know, revisiting... Shakespeare or W.E.B. Du Bois or Lao Tzu with environmental inquiries of various kinds, we can look at historical artists in any context and try to understand how they understood their environments. Mm -hmm. And even if they didn't have a kind of explicit green agenda, or even if they had an agenda that might be perceived as the antipathy of that, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's not about sort of imposing on the past some sort of presentist vision of, of ecology and environmentalism. I mean, after all, the word ecology wasn't even coined until 1866 by this German naturalist named Ernst Haeckel, who, by the way, was also, while he was a follower of Darwin, he was also kind of a scientific racist. And so that right there is plenty of complexity to wrestle with. Mm -hmm. And I think like any responsible historian, we ask what the circumstances were, what the discourses were in a particular context. We can bring our own interest in environmental issues and environmental history to bear on that context as long as we honor the the terms of that historical context and how environments and environmental problems were constructed in that context. Uh, and believe me, environmental problems have existed in one way or another for a long, long time. You know, uh, it's just a, a matter of understanding how things played out in a particular context. But I think that 
visual artists have a have a really interesting role to play because while they don't give us scientific data, they provide us pretty clear indications of how people felt about things and what they valued, what their emotional responses were to things, uh, and, and what their ideological frameworks were. And that's something that data rarely provides. And so you kind of need, this is, this is why I'm increasingly kind of committed to the environmental humanities as a project, because I recognize that this is kind of what's missing from all of the discussions and debates about science. Mm -hmm. The arts and the humanities provide this other window onto the issues that let us see how ordinary people often, or, or at least people who weren't scientists, perceived and understood environmental problems, environmental politics, environmental opportunities. And so uh, we, we, we kind of need eco-critical art history, I think. The human experience is very much a part of these broader environmental inquiries, is I think what I hear you saying. Yeah. And it certainly sounds like the environmental humanities can benefit from having the the kind of information and sources um, and material that art historians traditionally look at. I think that that's a great point, and it it gets back again to the the observation you made earlier about images and visual works of art and how they are kind of cultural constructions. Uh, or they can be. They I mean, can be. They both always are real things and also yeah. potentially ideals right right they bear witness but they also interpret and both of those things have to be kept in mind but it's the sort of critical or eco-critical if you will awareness of that bothness you know the the bearing witness and the interpretive in art that art historians are, i think are particularly well positioned mm -hmm. to keep us aware of or to kind of alert us to so mm -hmm. that we don't simply take some historical work of art uh, as a kind of photograph right. of reality. Right. I mean, art historians know fully well that photographs themselves are highly constructed, exactly. selected, chosen points of view yeah. on a particular scene, whatever it is. And, and, and that the whole apparatus of photography or whatever artistic mode is in in operation has its own kind of uh, infrastructural history mm -hmm. that needs to be considered as well. Mm -hmm. Not everyone had access to a camera in certain historical contexts, just as we can't assume everyone today has access to the internet. And, you know, uh, to kind of forget that different works of art have different medium specifications and different sort of ideological contexts is problematic. We have to kind of situate the art. It really seems to me like eco-critical art history is certainly not the only example of this in the environmental humanities, but an excellent example, uh, as you've kind of suggested, of simultaneously engaging both the subjective and the objective and, you know, recognizing both of those and, and engaging with both of those as historical realities as part of the human condition and as part of history mm -hmm. and the past, the present and the future. And mm -hmm. I think that's an important, a very important contribution that it brings. I think we've been talking about this for a while, but I'd really like to delve into the exhibition itself, Nature's Nation. Mm -hmm. So 
we'll have all the material on the website uh, about the different iterations. It started at Princeton University Art Museum, is currently at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts, and will be going to the Crystal Bridges Museum of Art in Bentonville, Arkansas. But can you just talk a little bit about the the background of this mm-hmm. exhibition? It's really a major show, probably the largest eco-critical art history, art exhibition, certainly the, the largest exhibition of American eco-critical art history. So wh- where did this exhibition come from? Where did the idea come from? And how? what was the process of putting it all together? Way back in 2010, I think, uh, Carl Cousero, who is the John Wilmerding Curator of American Art at Princeton University, contacted me out of the blue and said, Hi, I've been looking at your edited collection, A Keener Perception, Eco-Critical Studies in American Art History. In fact, he showed up unannounced at a symposium that I had organized at Temple University in Philadelphia in 2010. Interestingly, a symposium where the keynote speaker was Timothy Morton, who is now one of the authors featured in the exhibition book. Anyway, Carl came up to me during a break at the symposium and said, gee, I'm a curator at Princeton, and I think some version of this Akina Perception book could turn into an exhibition. And I, my eyes kind of lit up, and I thought, gee, what an interesting idea. And he had already come up with this title, Nature's Nation, American Art and Environment, uh, cribbing the, the phrase Nature's Nation from a pretty well-known book in American Studies uh, edited by Perry Miller back in 1967. Actually, it was a posthumous edited collection of Perry Miller's essays. Perry Miller was a, an eminent scholar of literature and American studies at Harvard University and was interested in sort of the history of American, here we mean primarily North American and primarily New England conceptions of nature going back to the Puritans. And, you know, to his credit, Miller had already identified what many scholars have since acknowledged as a kind of dilemma in American cultural history around nature, ideas about nature and the environment, whereby on the one hand you have this deeply rooted spiritual belief in the divinity of nature as God's creation, and therefore a a kind of uh, reservoir of moral value. But on the other hand, he recognized that a competing impulse in American history certainly rooted in colonialism, was the desire to develop and transform and kind of conquer. And those twin ideas about sort of the morality of nature as God's creation and the moral mission, the divine destiny of at least Euro-Americans to conquer and develop were in tension early on. The phrase nature's nation sort of conveys an idea that America and and eventually the United States was supposedly an exceptional arena in which these forces played out. That idea of American exceptionalism is something that we leveraged and immediately 
have attempted to problematize in our exhibition. And if you read the introduction to the book, you know, we say right away that we're putting this phrase and this idea of exceptionalism, nature's nation, in quotes. And we believe, as sort of environmentally informed art historians, that ecology and environmental history really reveal a kind of transnational complexity from the beginning in in any kind of American context. And so any belief in American exceptionalism or, or divine, you know, moral importance is is problematic and and we kind of see eco criticism as as performing a useful operation of of problematizing that notion of exceptionalism. The idea the idea for the exhibition started around two thousand nine with the book that you published and then 2010, Carl had this idea. So how, walk us through a little <laughs> what bit. What took for, so long? <laughs> well, uh, presumably curating an exhibition and especially an ambitious one such as this that includes hundreds of objects different from well, different collections. over a hundred objects, yeah. Um, and uh, with many uh, collaborators at, at, from the different borrowing institutions, the institutions that are showing the exhibition, as well as all of the various authors who included texts in the catalog itself. So what was the, the process like from the initial stages to, say, last year when the show first opened? Yeah, great question. And it has been a, a long process of years. Uh, things really started to get going in 2014 when I was invited to uh, spend a semester at Princeton as a visiting fellow and professor, uh, at which time we really started formulating the plans. Before that, it was a series of conversations uh, inspired by a keener perception in many ways, this idea of a kind of interdisciplinary collaboration, which that book already was. And so we we decided early on that we didn't want to just simply do it ourselves, the two of us. We wanted to bring multiple voices into the project as authors, and we consulted with a lot of people over the years to get input on how we might make the exhibition uh, richer and more diverse and more sort of responsive to what were clearly rapidly changing scholarly parameters and considerations, not just in art history, but the wider environmental humanities. I would say that one of the maybe steepest learning curves for us, uh, that is Carl and me, was really rolling up our sleeves and trying to understand better the problems of environmental justice from the points of view, not just of art historians and not just ourselves, but from different communities. And Environmental justice was there at the beginning, but the more conversations we had with people from different perspectives and different backgrounds, the more we realized that we needed to do more than we had initially planned. Mm -hmm. And that meant a more rigorous engagement with indigenous art history and African-American art history and questions about gender and you know, the result is still imperfect. In hindsight, I see 
still more things we could have done to make the project uh, even richer and and speak with more voices. But um, we did our best, given the kind of Herculean institutional f structures and frameworks that we were contending with, the need to borrow lots and lots of works of art, even though a number of Princeton Museum works are in the exhibition, there are 70 lenders to this exhibition. It was the biggest exhibition the Princeton University Art Museum had ever done uh, in terms of the number of lenders. And certainly one of the largest in sheer number of objects, uh, something like 120 objects at Princeton. About that number at Peabody Essex, it varies from institution to institution because the local curators have a certain amount of say and providing their own interpretation of the exhibition. But it definitely was a process that unfolded over years and underwent a number of revisions, and it entailed a lot of learning on our part. I wonder if you uh, have any knowledge or about, obviously the show opened at the Princeton University Art Museum. Your co-curator, Carl Cusero, is based there. But do you know how or why the Peabody Essex Museum and the Crystal Bridges oh. Museum of Art were interested? That's That's another interesting question that has to do with the logistics of exhibition curating today on this scale. We actually approached dozens of museums mm. about the idea of hosting the exhibition. I mean, this sounds like a show that would, like if every state could have uh, an iteration of this show, it would be <laughs> great, right? I mean, all, all, I of would America, love that. all of the United States has an environmental history, has environmental stories, mm -hmm. including stories that are very much intertwined with art. And right. all states have venerable art institution so it sounds right. like that that would be a a great thing to do if not a it would horrible be logistical nightmare well that's that's the thing a lot of museums that we talked to and we we had serious interest from some large urban and institutions including the national institution but for logistical reasons and to some extent because of a little lingering leeriness in the field of art history about this whole ecology thing, this sort of environmental discourse as something that not everyone really embraces still. We struggled to find hosting venues, but to the credit of Peabody Essex and Crystal Bridges, the curators at those institutions recognized that this is a story that needs to be told, that they can intervene in their own ways locally in tweaking the story, and that it's not something that a lot of people today shy away from. In fact, I think there's a lot of curiosity now, judging from the largely positive reviews that we've received and the good attendance at Princeton. I haven't heard yet about the attendance figures at Peabody Essex, but I hear that the attendance has been pretty good. The general public is is on board, sort of like my students. You know, they they don't need to be persuaded that there's value in an interdisciplinary conversation about art and ecology and environmental history and environmental justice. It's that's the way they think now, and I think the exhibition responds to that. You know, it entailed 
meetings with these the curators at these other institutions and some interesting discussions about the storyline and the tone and what's in and what's out you know the don't want to speak for the other curators and other institutions, but uh, I'll just say that they both had really valuable input, especially about the importance of including Native American works of art, uh, which is one of the areas of strength, particularly at the Peabody Essex Museum mm -hmm. in Salem. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's borne out in the, the their venue, their version of the exhibition which i saw a couple weeks ago and uh, it's impressive and so an exhibition is a large expensive organic behemoth on the scale because we're talking about over a hundred works of art that are very very valuable that need to be carefully crated and insured and shipped around and interpreted in a responsible and compelling way so that visitors to the museum have an interesting experience that's uh, informative. And um, those are huge challenges. <laughs> but uh, Princeton, thanks to its enormous resources, was able to pull it off pretty well. And they have some very generous donors that helped make that possible. So we've talked actually more than I was planning or expecting uh, about logistics, but that's actually in part an aspect of the exhibition. It was something that I think maybe you had mentioned to me before I had visited the show in Princeton, but maybe it wasn't at the forefront of my mind because this is, as someone who has a training in art history and as, of course, someone who works with you, seeing so many of these artworks is just kind of stunning. It's an amazing show in just in terms of the art but of course it's dealing with these deep and complex and diverse ecological issues and one of the things that i was sort of most excited to see in the exhibition when i visited at princeton was this accompanying website that talked about the ecology of an exhibition and of mm -hmm. this exhibition itself can you sort of Perhaps we can include the link of this yeah. uh, on the website, but can you describe what this website is, where it came from, and mm -hmm. sure. how and why you're asking these questions about the ecology of an exhibition itself? Right. Well, as you say, there's a website that accompanies the exhibition and is on view in the exhibition that examines the exhibition itself as an environmental event of sorts, as a kind of institution with a material and environmental footprint that is not insignificant. And early on, I think partly as arising from my in interest as an art historian in what art historians call the institutional critique of mode of self-criticism and self-analysis in the art world that goes back, well, certainly to the 1960s and 70s when certain artists were kind of examining the museum as an institution that constructed knowledge in certain ways. Certain artists, I think of Hans Hacke and uh, Robert Morris and, and uh, Barbara Kruger and others, were examining the museum as this not-so-neutral vehicle for conveying information that needed to be examined critically because it was entangled in various ways in the politics of its time. 
So Hans Hacke famously did his uh, MoMA poll in, at the Museum of Modern Art in 1970, where he sort of drew attention to the fact that members of the board of trustees at MoMA, including you know Nelson Rockefeller, had deep roots in the oil industry and were connected with the Vietnam War in various ways. And Hakka, doing his institutional critique, wanted to draw attention to that. That made an impression on me. You know, I didn't see that particular institution, but that was part of my kind of training as an art historian, and I really kind of liked that self-analysis. And so I got the idea somewhere in, you know, about four years ago that this Nature's Nation exhibition should do its own sort of self-analysis, its own sort of ecological medical critique, where we uh, gather information about the carbon footprint of all of the loans and the transportation and the materials that go into producing an exhibition. And so while I was at Princeton again in 2017-18, I, I actually taught a course called the Eco-Critical Exhibition. And there were five very smart Princeton undergraduates in that course whom I tasked with gathering data about museum exhibitions from an environmental perspective. And we interviewed a number of sort of emerging scholars in this area of sort of the environmental dimensions of museums. We interviewed them via Skype, and and uh, the students then embarked on you know, doing as much research as they could on what the environmental impact of this exhibition would be. Of course, when they were doing this, the exhibition was still more an idea than a reality, and so they could only sort of gather hypothetical information. Uh, but with my help, they did produce a website, and uh, they shared some of their preliminary findings. And that website then became a kind of template or a model that provided the basis for what you see in Nature's Nation. They didn't use all of the information that mm -hmm. this, my students had found. Mm -hmm. And what they ended up including in the website is it's it's still somewhat basic. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, gathering this kind of information is its own Herculean task. Mm -hmm. And it's a sign of how complex any large undertaking is in terms of measuring. But uh, our idea was just to alert viewers that the environmental story here is not just sort of the pictures on the wall, but it's the institutional operation itself. I was just so struck when I saw the website and I explored, you know, all of these kinds of things. It's it's not something, a lot of the pieces of the information were not things that I was unaware of. But first of all, to, to put them all together in that kind of linear fashion, explaining it is not something that I usually thought of. And to include that within and as part of the exhibition, to me, was very new. In fact, I don't know if I've ever seen that anywhere else. Are you aware of this? I mean, I guess some of you and your students interviewed other people familiar with these, this kind of thinking, yeah. but I, I don't think I've ever seen that in an art exhibition before. Have you? No, Is no, this no. <laughs> popular? I, or? Uh, maybe I'm I'm missing something, yeah. but I I had not seen something like this before. You're right that there are more and more museums thinking about sustainability, and mm -hmm. there are even museums now that are designed with sort of uh, certified sustainable 
you know, architecture and materials. Right. Uh, the Grand Rapids Art Museum in Michigan is the first LEED certified art museum. That LEED meaning leadership in energy and environmental design. It's a sort of measurable uh, uh, benchmark of sustainability in, in architectural uh, design. But very few institutions are building this into the narrative of the exhibition itself. And right. we wanted to do that. Uh, as a way of, again, enriching the story. And I think that um, it runs the risk of making people feel guilty about even setting foot in, that, in an exhibition. Well, but, I mean, so does the art on the wall well, make them feel guilty about being alive there's in an ecological, the 21st century. I think mo many of us in the sort of right. environmental humanities and other related fields recognize and acknowledge there's an ecological impact to existing, right. period. Right. Um, Ecology so is fundamentally about entanglement and interconnectedness and mm -hmm. and and acknowledging that mm -hmm. and taking it into account in our daily actions and you know nobody's perfect and we all have a long way to go some have more distance to go than others our president for example could do an awful lot more than he's doing in fact he's i think counterproductive in many ways but i think that you know charles darwin said it beautifully in that famous last paragraph of Origin of Species, where he imagines what he called an entangled bank, uh, just some sort of ordinary place on the bank of a river where thousands of species of plants and insects and animals coexist. And it's messy and it's hard to comprehend. But he said that there's a, there's a grandeur in understanding this if we can and i think that's sort of what i'm about here is trying to imagine an art history that that has that grandeur that that uh, recognition of entanglement as a as a fundamental and inescapable fact of reality i wonder if we could maybe turn toward some of the artworks themselves as sure as getting at a number of these issues one of the sort of more prominent pairings that people find in the exhibition and i've only been to the the show at the princeton university museum and and so I, i'm sure the arrangement might be different from one museum to another and even some of the objects are not necessarily going to appear yeah. in all of the iterations. But I'm going to talk broadly about some of these works of art. Certainly, they're covered in the catalog, and we'll share what we can in terms of images. And I certainly encourage people to go to museum websites and look at and think about these works of art. But I think one of the most striking juxtapositions that people will notice in the show is the beginning of the show at Princeton, the comparison between Albert Bierstadt's Bridalville Falls, Yosemite, from circa 1871-1873, and Valerie Hegarty's Fallen Bierstadt from 2007. Mm -hmm. So sort of a, an initial painting, pristine Western wilderness, and then a reaction to it from recent times. And as you're showing me right now, wonderfully depicted on the dust jacket of the exhibition catalog. Yeah. It seems to me in many ways, this pairing really sums up the show. It mm -hmm. It is absolutely not in any way about, in a simple sense, simply rejecting art and artists like Bierstadt, it's it's considering them for all that they can tell us, including the ways that they are part of this ongoing conversation, mm -hmm. which we see in, in responses like the work of Valerie Hegarty's here. Right. So can you talk about this pairing and, and how maybe this 
is emblematic of the exhibition itself, as well as this eco-critical art history impulse. Right. So, as you said, there is this pairing of a 19th century romantic landscape painting by Albert Bierstadt showing Bridal Veil Falls at Yosemite, uh, a beautiful landscape painting of uh, a majestic and, and then already famous waterfall at a site, Yosemite, that became the first public state park in U.S. history and later one of the first national parks. And there are no people in the picture. There are a pair of deer uh, in the foreground. And it's, it's a kind of glorious celebration of what Bierstadt and many uh, 19th century Euro-Americans regarded as nature in its purest sense, a sort of unblemished ideal of nature as as a place far away in an untainted and untouched place, Yosemite in this case. I think it's important to sort of recognize and even honor Bierstadt's achievement on some level insofar as he and his fellow landscape painters in this romantic tradition did help galvanize early and real environmental activism of a sort, insofar as their work celebrated these places that governments then decided to protect and set aside from economic development, setting in motion what we now recognize as modern environmentalism, as a movement dedicated to protecting certain places from commercial exploitation. But there's another side to this whole story that we don't often recognize or see when we look at these beautiful paintings, and that is that they're premised on this belief that nature in its best sense is somehow pure and untouched and uninhabited, when in fact places like Yosemite had been inhabited by Native American people for millennia. And to imagine nature in its purest sense as removing not only those people, but all people except for privileged tourists who can go and consume such places as sort of aesthetic spectacles, for whatever well-intentioned purposes, is an oversimplification of history. And it's that complexity, that sense of mixed message or ambivalence that Valerie Hegarty's 21st century work speaks to. She literally reproduces Bierstadt's painting. It's a wonderful she, reproduction. She's a good it's... painter, and she takes Bierstadt's painting and reconstructs it so that it looks like Bierstadt's own painting, but then she subjects it to a kind of violent deconstruction by bending the frame and perforating the canvas with a blowtorch and creating holes that look almost like bullet holes. And when I was looking at the painting again two weeks ago, I noticed something I hadn't actually noticed before about it. There are these spatters of blood red paint on the surface of Hegarty's version of Bierstadt, as if to suggest that that there's a there's a real violence informing this uh, damage, this destruction that she's imposing on the work. And again, it, it's not like she's trying to attack Yosemite or that place so much as an excessive idealism mm -hmm. that the romantic landscape tradition 
espoused in sort of erasing history in order to create this perfect vision of an untouched nature. Mm -hmm. What she's trying to do with such a work is is not really damage to the play so much as make us recognize that many of us have a kind of illusion or a dream about what nature is mm -hmm. and that in reality our environments are much more complicated and they have much longer histories that are often contested and we can't really begin to live and coexist fairly and justly in these places until we reckon with the history that they embody. And so that's what her work is about. Some find it a little sort of over the top, her approach. And she does this, she's done this to a number of famous works of 19th century romantic landscape painting. And, you know, I suppose once you get her idea, you sort of understand it. But it is interesting to see her choices and and to reckon with how kind of sophisticated some of her choices are. And uh, this is certainly a history we're all wrestling with today as we kind of decolonize the museum and we decolonize education and we decolonize our understanding of environmental history. I think the reaction to Hegarty's work is so sort of strong and visceral for exactly the, the reasons you're saying that it, it it sort of messes with this ideal of nature that we have, including this visual aesthetic ideal, which is heavily bound up with ideas and ideals of beauty, right? Mm -hmm. we, we've sort of been trained and taught to see nature in a perhaps singular way and this pristine wilderness. Yeah. It, it is, it's visually compelling. And I think a lot of people like those images. So for me, this, this raises a, a, a whole set of important questions about aesthetics and beauty yes. in in the relationship of ecology and art. I thought of sort of two different examples of this. One is Schubanker Banerjee's spectacular photograph, large, grand, beautiful photograph of the Caribou Arctic. migration. Yes, yeah. um, which in many ways is kind of a 21st century Bierstadt, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's playing with beauty and aesthetics mm -hmm. to to inspire a, a positive, powerful, emotional response to yeah. what is basically a slightly more modern version of this 19th century pristine wilderness vision. But it's a stunning, beautiful image. Mm -hmm. So that's one potential problem as I see it or question. Mm -hmm. And the other uh, for me is something like Edward Bertinsky's photograph mm -hmm. of an oil spill, which likewise is this large, almost luscious, beautiful photograph of an oil spill, right, <laughs> something right. that we're not supposed to look at and go, ooh, that's beautiful, that's visually stunning and compelling, right. something that we're supposed to look at and go, oh my gosh, how terrible. Right. So for Banerjee, I wonder if he's sort of reifying these old ideas of pristine wilderness and if there's a problem with that. And for someone like Bertinsky, I wonder if he's using aesthetics and beauty to draw attention to perhaps environmental problems, but the aesthetics sort of overwhelm it. And instead of sort of being concerned or interested about the environmental degradation that he's trying to describe, we're just enjoying it aesthetically. Right. Are these issues as you see them? These or? are enormous issues, and they get right to the heart of the challenge in discussing art in relation to ecology and environmental history and environmental justice. Uh, it's an issue 
by the way, that's actually become a recurring topic of discussion and debate in my art and ecology class here at William and Mary, where I'm teaching this course again this spring. And um, that issue has, for some reason, really come to the fore this semester with my students, some of whom, like you say, really want art to be kind of explicitly activist and to condemn unequivocally uh, what they, the students, regard as environmental injustice, while other students sort of embrace the idea that beauty can play a role even in that kind of Bertinsky format of presenting to us a disturbing reality with a kind of aesthetic appeal of some sort. For the first category of students, that mix of aesthetics and horror is kind of unacceptable because it seems irresponsible. And Nicholas Mirzoff and other scholars have talked about this uh, this anesthetizing or anesthetizing uh, effect of beauty in such contexts as, in effect, naturalizing or or legitimizing environmental pollution and environmental injustice. But for those who are more sort of um, uh, open to beauty, even in that context, they feel that beauty in that context, uh, this mixture of beauty and horror, is effective precisely because it's disturbing. It, It provokes us into asking, what does our beauty do? What does our sense of beauty impose on the world? It, in a way, does a kind of meta-critique of aesthetics as a powerful force that humans, uh, in many ways, can't escape using in a lot of ways. And so works like Bertinsky's perhaps alert us to that impulse, to that instinct use of beauty that many of us, if not all of us, bring to our experience of the world. And in that respect, maybe there's a defense of Bertinsky's beautification of the horrible, just as there might be a a defense of Monet and his 19th century Impressionist paintings of polluted harbors or whatever as, as sort of disturbingly beautiful. In the case of Bertinsky, that's quite deliberate. In the case of Monet, he hadn't developed this kind of modern ecological sensitivity, really. And so there are different case studies. As for Banerjee, I mean, I have a lot of respect for Banerjee, who has his work definitely grew out of the tradition of romanticism that we're talking about here. But in the face of that scandal in Washington, where his work was censored quite deliberately by the, the Smithsonian, and then Subsequently, he's he's really become quite an engaged environmental activist. And ultimately, what I take away from these complexities, these different modes, is that we, I think, should tolerate different artistic modes because artists need a big toolkit. They need to have all the tools at their disposal to use in whatever way they can to provoke as many people as possible in as many different ways as possible. Because not everyone responds well to, like, really explicit forms of of social activist art. 
a lot of people hate that art because it's so it can be really sort of clunky and predictable. Uh, likewise, you know, obviously a lot of people don't really respond well to really oblique and abstract forms of of beauty either. And so uh, I'm arguing for a kind of tempered diversity of artistic modalities. It's just what I don't want to see is art that completely ignores the problem or pretends that it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Just as I don't like politicians who do that. Just to punctuate this point even more forcefully, I think we have to be open to art that doesn't necessarily express environmental activism in really obvious ways because all sorts of art can provoke us into re-examining our relation to the world, to our environments. And sometimes it's hard to predict what art will do that. I mean, that sounds exactly like what you were saying about eco-critical art history more generally, that you know, for the past, present, and future, it's not necessarily about examining or just examining works that you know we might consider explicitly environmental it's recognizing these very complex and rich ecological implications and you know all artworks can speak to that mm -hmm. and so this this idea that recognizing the diversity of those kinds of experiences and thoughts and situatednesses is itself sort of a, a recommendation or an argument for recognizing that diversity. How do you conceive of and display about 300 years of American art that can tell a story or a set of stories about art and ecology? Well, you take a lot of diverse views, right? That's the only way you could possibly yeah. even begin to try to do it. And I think that's what what's going on here. Yeah. Let's remember that for a long, long time in the field of art history and in sort of Western culture in general, there were entire categories of people and their art excluded because they were viewed as somehow not legitimate. And so exclusion is a problem that I think we should avoid. That makes for a very complex challenge of inclusion, obviously. But in this respect, I'm a more is more person. That's a principle that's going to guide me moving forward as I embark on a new project uh, next year while I'm going to be um, a research fellow at the Getty in California, where I'm going to be working on a new book called uh, Implication Theory and Practice in Ecocritical Art History, with this idea of implication being about sort of the inevitable entanglement and inescapability of our relation to environments and how art has diverse ways of engaging that entanglement, that implication, that state of implication that all human beings and other beings share, admittedly, in different ways and in different sort of political constellations. But I'm really against this idea that there's a sort of perfect untouched nature and that there's a place where we can go that's sort of outside these problems. And the more inclusive we are about not only who makes art, but the kinds of art that they make, the better, in my view. Mm -hmm. 
well, it sounds like everything is implicated. We're all implicated. So mm-hmm. uh, it sounds like a fantastic project. And hopefully we can hear more about that in the future. And I think this is a, a great way to end the conversation. So I just want to thank you for sitting down and talking about this exhibition. And hopefully we'll hear from you more sometime in the future. Great. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by Carly Griffith, Christopher Slaby, and me, Brian Hamilton. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. We'll be back in two weeks with poet Brian Teer, chatting with Dr. Lynn Keller about his new collection, Doomstead Days. You can get all our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to EdgeFX wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review or tell a friend about it. That really helps us connect with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag, that's EdgeFXMAG. And as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgeffects.net.